Well, we're going to read the Bible together now, and we're turning to John's Gospel, John chapter 4. I'm going to read a very famous story about Jesus meeting and speaking to the woman of Samaria. John chapter 4. You'll find our reading on page 889 of the Pew Bibles, page 889. We're going to pick up our reading midway through the story in verse 16, and we're going to read down to verse 26. So John chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, and reading down to verse 26, and it's page 889 in the Pew Bibles. And this is God's word to us. Jesus said to her, that's the woman of Samaria, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. We're going to think about the passage that we read together earlier in our service. And as you're turning to John chapter 4, let's pray for a moment together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is light and life to us. And we pray that as we look at your word together this morning, that you would come by your spirit and speak to all of our hearts, that you would encourage us and bless us and build us up, but that you would also challenge those who haven't yet trusted in the Savior. Father, we pray that you'd speak in these moments, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our series on the eldership. This is the second sermon in a series of four. I mentioned last week that we're thinking about the church over two weeks, and then we're going to think about the qualifications for elders over two weeks as well. Uh, Last week we thought about the origins of the church from Matthew 16, 18, where the church came from and so on. Uh, This this week we're going to be thinking about the worship of the church. It may seem slightly strange to you that we're thinking about the church as part of our eldership, uh, eldership election. But as I said last week, it's important that we understand what the church is and what the church does. If we don't understand either of those things, then we'll not really understand the role of an elder within the church. Uh, elders are God's gift to the church. They serve the church. They, they, they serve those who belong to the church. Uh, if we don't understand what the Bible teaches us about the church, then we'll struggle to understand what the Bible teaches us about the role of elders. This morning we're thinking about the worship of the church. Um, we're going to look at John four sixteen to 26. 
It's going to be helpful for us to think about worship, mainly because we all worship something. Depending on our backgrounds or interests, there will be something that we worship. It could be a football team. What, you, what, what do you do if you're a big supporter of a football team? You go to matches, you watch your team, you'll buy their shirt, you'll cheer when they score, and you'll be disappointed when they lose. In some cases, you might even be crushed when they lose. It could be family. We, we, we all want the best for our children. We want to make sure that they don't go without. But when something happens to them, or if they fail at something, or they, they don't achieve what we expected them to achieve, it can crush us. It could be our health. could be the health of others. could be power and influence in work or in the community or even in the church. It could be the approval of others. It could be money or possessions. The, the, the list is literally endless. The, the, those feelings of, of being crushed should make us realize that we're worshiping whatever it is that has crushed us or disappointed us. We're putting in a place that it doesn't deserve. We're, we're giving it honor and prestige that isn't due to it. The Bible talks about our worship of football or family or whatever it is using the word idolatry. We are all idolaters. It was, it was Calvin who said that our hearts are like idol factories. They, they churn out idols for us to worship. And that's the natural inclination of our hearts. We, we worship created things rather than God our creator. The Apostle Paul outlined the extent of our worship problem in, the, in his first chapter of Romans. He wrote that we all, all of us here this morning, have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We all worship something. It's just a question of what. But what about Christian worship? If we have trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, God calls us to worship him and to pour out our lives in service of him. Again, the Apostle Paul explains this very clearly for us. Having explained the beauty and depth of the gospel in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he writes this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the, re by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God calls us to worship him and to pour out our lives in service of him. Worship in terms of what we do on a day-by-day -day basis, but specific focused worship on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. Well, what's interesting about the passage we read earlier, John 4, 16 to 26, is that Jesus talks about true worshipers. In verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Well, what is true worship in a church setting? And what's the difference between true and false worship? We all worship something. We need to confess our idolatry regularly. If we're believers, though, we're called to worship God through our daily lives, but, but also on the first day of the week. What, what, what is true worship and what does it look like in a church? J John 4 is a really helpful passage because it gives us four characteristics of true worship. We're going to think through these characteristics for a few moments. And then at the end, I'm going to explain why all of this is important and how it connects with our eldership election. The first thing we see in John 4 is that true worship is spiritual worship. True worship is spiritual worship. 
Uh, the, the story that we've read from uh, that we've read in John four is one of the better known stories from the Gospels. Jesus is is speaking to and interacting with a woman from Samaria. Her her life story was one that was marked with immorality. We're going to touch on that in a moment. But the key thing to notice in this first point is that the woman is a Samaritan. There had been seven centuries of bitter rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans. In her conversation with Jesus, the woman attempts to summarize in simple terms where the rivalry stemmed from. You can see her explanation in verse 20. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Her explanation is simplistic. She essentially says that the, the, the difference you, the Jews, and the difference between you, the Jews, and us, the Samaritans, is that we worship on different mountains. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped on their mount in Jerusalem. It's a simplistic explanation and one that Jesus very calmly refutes. In verse 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, Jesus says that the mountains are irrelevant. You don't need a mountain to worship on because, verse 23 and verse 24, the hour is coming and is here now when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, how Jesus describes God here is important. He says that God is spirit. And he says that those who worship him don't have to worship him in a particular place or on a particular mountain. Jesus also says that God is spirit. He doesn't say that God is a spirit. He says God is spirit. He is a spiritual being. Therefore, those who worship him must worship in spirit. The nature of our worship must align with the nature of the God we're worshiping. Since God is a spiritual being, our worship must be spiritual. Now, we've got to think about what that looks like. It sounds quite removed or quite distant from us. How do you worship in a spiritual way? To, to, to understand it, th- th- think of it like this. Worship that is pleasing to God is inward, not outward. Worship that is pleasing to God flows from the heart rather than from our lips. So it's not about outward worship, performing certain rituals with our bodies, for example. It's more to do with the movement of our spirit towards God in love and affection. Now, we should say that outward forms of worship aren't always wrong or unnecessary. Uh, the best example that I could come up with was a memory of what someone from my home congregation did and still does every Sunday. When it comes to the opening prayer in a service, they, they put their head on the pew in front of them. And they're basically bowing as low as they can while sitting in a pew. Now, the outward posture isn't required. They don't have to do it, but it expresses something of the greatness of God and of who they are and of who he is. It's a perfectly right and harmless outward expression of spiritual worship. It is possible, of course, to bow outwardly, but not inwardly. In other words, you can do the action, but in your heart, you're far from the Lord. The fancy word for that is externalism, and it's a huge danger. The Bible has all sorts of warnings about it and the, about it and the danger of externalism. Externalism is worshiping God outwardly but not inwardly. It's looking religious while being far from God inwardly. In Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, God calls His people out for drawing near to Him with their mouths 
honoring him with their lips, all the while their hearts are far from me. Jesus took those same words and applied them to the Pharisees. And we need the warning today as well. Well, we should always beware of the danger of going through the motions in worship when, it, when we come to church. Singing when we have to sing, bowing when we have to bow, opening the Bible when the minister says to open the Bible. God is concerned with our hearts. He isn't primarily concerned with our lips. He's concerned with our spirits. True worship is, is spiritual worship. Secondly, true worship is rational worship. True worship is rational worship. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Those who worship God are to worship him in spirit and truth. The the long-running disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans wasn't just over which mountain they worshipped on. It was also that they acknowledged different scriptures. The Samaritan scripture was only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They only accepted the authority of Moses and rejected the prophets. That was significant because in rejecting the prophets, they were rejecting the fuller revelation of God and were ignoring the promise of the Messiah. Their worship, therefore, was greatly impoverished. It wasn't what it should have been. And that's why Jesus says to the woman in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. The Jews loved rites and ceremonies. Uh, One of the most striking memories I have from a trip to Israel was the experience of visiting the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Lots of men walking around, wearing certain clothes, posturing against the wall in a certain way for a certain period of time. The Jews loved external rites and ceremonies. And to them, Jesus says, you need to worship God in spirit. But to the Samaritans, to those who weren't following all of the scriptures, To those who were actually ignoring three quarters of the Old Testament revelation, Jesus tells them, you need to worship God in truth. Acceptable worship, true worship, is not only of the spirit, it's of the mind as well. It's rational. We can't give ourselves to a God we don't know. It wouldn't be right or reasonable to expect us to do that. The Bible commands us to love love the Lord our God with all our mind. Worship depends on revelation. The more we know God, the better we can worship him. It's impossible to worship an unknown God. In Acts 17, Paul addresses the men of Athens and says that on his travels through the city, he saw an object of worship that had an inscription underneath it to the unknown God. He then continues and and peels away at the notion that you can worship a God that you don't know. It's, It's just not possible. Now, the practical application for us as we think about this is the essential place of Scripture in worship. The Bible is the Word of God. It is God's special revelation to the world. Without the Bible, we can't worship God in truth. The Word evokes our worship. Think of our service this morning. How did it start? The announcements came first. Then we said hello to each other. But what happened after that? We had our call to worship. A better question to ask is, When did the service start? When did our worship begin? The announcements, no. Our welcome of each other, no. The call to worship, yes. Our service this morning, and and all of our services in fact, begin with us hearing from the Bible. The call to worship isn't just a boring old tradition. We don't have it because we've always had it. Our worship begins with us hearing from the scriptures. 
And as God speaks to us through his word, we respond and our worship begins. Without the Bible, we can't worship God in truth. The word evokes our worship. True worship is spiritual worship, but true worship is also rational worship as well. The third thing we see in this passage is that true worship is holy worship. Look at verses 16 to 18 of John 4. Jesus said to her, the Samaritan woman, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, what I want you to see is that Jesus' Jesus command to the woman, go call your husband, comes before come and worship. You need to notice that because what that tells us is that the summons to repentance comes before the summons to worship. The summons to repentance comes before the summons to worship. The Samaritan woman couldn't worship God until she had exposed and confessed and repented of her sin and been forgiven. No one can worship God unless they've been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ and unless they're living in holiness and righteousness. Now, this is one of the most consistent themes through all of the Bible. You just can't miss it. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who can worship God according to Psalm 24? Someone with clean hands and a pure heart. Israel kept forgetting this principle and the prophets were were scathing about where the people were in spiritual terms. Isaiah was particularly critical of false and holy worship. In 59.3, Isaiah says, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters, mutters wickedness. What he's saying there is that those who are claiming to worship God are, are worshiping him, but they're, but they're living in an ungodly way. And the startling thing that Isaiah tells us is that God's people won't listen, is that he won't listen to this kind of worship from his people. Uh, Isaiah 1, 15 to 17, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Jesus in his day said exactly the same thing to the Pharisees. He once said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. True worship is holy worship. It's not until we have confessed our sins and asked for forgiveness that we dare approach God in worship. In a sense, Sunday should bring into focus the rest of our life. How are we living between Monday to Saturday? In what context do we come to worship on a Sunday? One of the attributes of God is his omniscience, the fact that he knows and sees everything. It's humbling for us to realize that God knows the context in which we come to worship, even though we can hide it from other people. God sees our hearts, knows how we're living, and he calls us to holy worship. True worship is spiritual worship, rational worship, holy worship. Fourthly and finally, true worship is corporate worship. This point is very short, but it's worth noting. In verse 16, Jesus seems to be saying two things to the woman of Samaria. He says, go call your husband and come here. The first thing he's doing is calling the woman to repent. She had to repent to worship. 
She needed to repent of her immorality, her sexual offenses before she could worship. The second thing Jesus is doing, though, is telling the woman that her husband is the first and most obvious person with whom she should share worship with. In other words, Jesus tells her to repent, to come and worship, and then to bring with her the person she's closest to, her spouse. There is a place for solitary worship, for us coming to God as individuals, but there's also a place for us coming to worship God in our families. There are huge challenges in this area because of modern life. Gone are the days when people just went to church. Gone are the days when young people followed their parents and went to church without arguing back. One of the key marks of an elder, a key mark that we'll touch on in the coming weeks, is that they think that it's important that their family goes to church to worship. That, that, that's a word for all of us, whether we're elders or not. Do, do we believe that coming to church is the most important part of our week? Is church in the same category as swimming, music, dancing or gymnastics optional, there if we want it for our children, or is it essential? In so many ways, the consumerism that we see in our society has muddled our thinking when it comes to church. More often than not, church falls into the optional category rather than the essential category. But John 4 reminds us that worshipping with the people we're closest to is vital. True worship is spiritual worship, it's rational worship, it's holy worship, and it's corporate worship. God the Father wants true worshippers. Did you notice that in our passage? In verse 23, Jesus says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's helpful to understand that. Jesus is seeking lost sheep, but God's quest for people doesn't end when the sheep is found and brought safely home. If the shepherd is seeking the lost, the Father is seeking the saved, seeking them to worship. He desires spiritual worship, rational worship, holy worship, and corporate worship. Now, how does all of this connect with our eldership election? Jesus is the builder of his church, and Jesus is the protector of his church. We all worship something, but when it comes to worshiping God, John 4 sets out clearly what God expects. Well, here's how it connects. If God desires spiritual, rational, holy, corporate worship from his people, then that's what you should be looking for as you think about who to elect as an elder. Let's tease that out a little bit more. What type of person should you consider? Is it someone who worships in a spiritual way? You don't want someone who's performing externally for others to see, but is in a different place inwardly. We'll talk about this over the next few weeks, but that's where character and reputation of an elder is important. What type of person should you consider? Someone who worships in a rational way. Someone who loves the word. Someone who loves the Bible. Someone who loves to hear the Bible explained. Someone who talks about the Bible. Someone who can explain and articulate the Bible to others. What type of person should you consider? Someone who worships in a holy way. Someone who isn't known for significant public sin. Someone who regularly repents of their sin. What type of person should you consider? Someone who believes in the importance of corporate worship. Someone who says, we can do X, Y, and Z as a family through the week, but there's one place we're going to be at 12 noon on a Sunday. That's why all this biblical material on the church is helpful. If we don't understand what the Bible teaches us about the church, then we'll struggle to understand what the Bible teaches about the role of elders. 
John 4 is a really instructive passage for us when it comes to worship. We all worship something. It's just a question of what. But, but, but if we've trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, God calls us to worship him and to, to pour out our lives in service of him. Let, let me finish by, by speaking to you this morning if you're not a Christian. The, the, the thing for you to take away with you this morning is that the Samaritan woman couldn't worship God until she had exposed and confessed and repented of her sin and been forgiven. And it's the same for you if you have never trusted the Lord. Worship follows repentance and faith. The story of the woman from Samaria finishes with her saying that she knows the Messiah is coming. Jesus reveals himself to her and says, I who speak to you am he. In other words, I'm the person you've been looking for. This morning, if you're not a Christian, Jesus is the person you need, the person you've probably been looking for. He alone will satisfy and complete you. All you have to do is come to him in repentance and faith. True worship is spiritual, rational, holy, and corporate. And it always follows repentance and trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we thank you that your word sets out how we are to worship you. We pray that our worship would be spiritual worship, that we would worship you inwardly in our hearts, that we would serve you as best we can. We, we pray that our, our worship would be rational, that we would love the scriptures and, and, and seek to hear from you as we open the Bible. We pray that you'd help us to confess our sin regularly, that our worship would be holy. And we pray as well that our worship would be corporate, that we would invite family members and friends to come and join us here at 12 noon, Sunday by Sunday. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the person that we need the most. And we pray for those who haven't yet trusted him, that they would see their need of him and would repent and believe in all that he has done. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.